welcome to the energy talk podcast my name is olubumi Alajide, and thank you so much for joining us again this week today i'm extremely excited to introduce our guest i'll be speaking with damala ugubigi she is the ceo of sustainable energy for all and we're going to be talking about how we are on track for sustainable development goal seven damala has a very unique way of communicating and i was fortunate to listen to her talk at length on a webinar organized by Stellar energy as part of the leaders fellowship today we get to share some of her story with you about the work that se for all is doing and just how much is going to take for us to achieve sustainable development goal seven and what you can do to get part of this huge push for the continent and for the planet i hope you enjoy this and i hope you learn from this let's get right into the conversation saying this but welcome to the energy talk podcast it is truly a pleasure having you here i can't say that enough so thank you so much for making the time for this thank you for having me it's truly my pleasure so just in case there's like uh two percent of audience that doesn't know who you are could you please do some introductions so we can know a little bit about you before we go into the rest of the conversation Okay, my name is Damilola Ogumbi. Um, I'm originally from Nigeria. I am the CEO and the UN Special Representative for Sustainable Energy. In my previous life, I was the MD of the Rural Electrification Agency in Nigeria, and I also worked with advising the vice president. Okay, thank you for that. You've come a very long way. I, I've heard a lot about your story personally, and I just wanted you to talk about how you got involved with SE4O. How did that story play out? Because I know that you spent quite some time in the energy space in Nigeria. So what were the motivations really pushed you into energy, and how did that lead up to your current position at SE4O? At, at SE okay, well, I wasn't traditionally interested in the energy space. I had done my degrees in construction engineering and also in kind of like infrastructure development. But I've always been a strong believer in infrastructure alleviating poverty from quite an early age, from probably when I was about 20. And I'd always want to, wanted to work in the space. So fast forward a few years, got married, and my husband is like, we're moving to Nigeria. And I'm like, what am I going to do? So I was just very interested in working with government and understanding how they develop infrastructure and public-private partnerships. I was really lucky to be advising Lagos State at the time. And then, you know, kind of advising as an external consultant until the time where Minister Fashola, now Governor Fashola then, asked if I would be senior special assistant on public-private partnerships, of which I said yes, as long as I was able to develop an energy project. He graciously allowed me through public-private partnership to develop five different IPPs focusing on really powering hospitals and legal state government facilities to make them more sustainable, to make them more effective, and to reduce the cost of diesel and also just breakdowns in generators and the capex costs. So did that for a few years, then went on to the federal government to advise the vice president, which is an amazing opportunity. Um, and then I was asked to be the head of REA, which, you know, also took up as long as, you know, infusing a renewable edge to things and infusion the need for global capital through the big financial institutions like the World Bank and the African Development Bank, which again, were, you know, were kind enough to, after banging on the door for many years for making our loan effective, they're kind enough to do that. And they're still in country supporting us. And then I got a call one day and they said that the head of SE4 was leaving. Would I be interested in the role of which initially I said, no, 
I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good in Nigeria. And then I spoke to my husband. He's like, "Are you sure?" And then I um, and then I came back and <laughs> said, "Okay, maybe." And that was really because I feel like there's not enough African voices in the global conversation. And it's very, very important that we are the ones actually, you know, explaining to people what our pathways will be because we're very unique. And I feel like Africa is sometimes looked at as a country instead of a, a very rich and diverse continent. And I wanted to, to be part of stressing the voice that, you know, an African can take over such an organization and work on the UN at the highest level. But more importantly, I also wanted to understand better the global landscape and use those influences to just better, you know, process the entire SDG 7 agenda, which for your audience is, you know, access to modern, sustainable, you know, affordable energy. I'm sure I've missed out one one acronym there. And that that, that is very important to me, universal access for, I think, 789 million people who don't have it and 2.8 billion people who don't have access to clean cooking is my mission, is the reason why I exist at the moment. And it's a very, very important course to myself and my team. That's always a really great story to hear. How has it been? Is it is it all you imagine it to be? And how do you see the SDG 7 challenge being so close to, at the very top level, getting to attract people who are solving their problems either locally or at an international level? So has your perception of the challenge changed now and how do you perceive it? I mean, my perception of the challenge has just become bigger. I wasn't, I didn't go into the role having some you know, some ideal idea of what my role would be. I mean, I didn't think there would be a global pandemic, which makes things very, very hard to just work with your team and also engage with people, because I do believe in that human connection when, we, when we're when we spreading such big messages. But on the flip side, what it's allowed us to do is that, yeah, everyone's available on Zoom now, right? So you get to speak to a larger audience instead of always being on the plane. Because of the pandemic, you know, 150 million people have gone back to extreme poverty. So it's even more of a bigger challenge. And now that we see kind of the COVID vaccine response and everything, we can see how it's not equitable between the developed and the developing world. And we can see why the information and what we've been talking about, universal access, is so important at this moment because of the cold chains needed just because we're all so interconnected. So I think in terms of probably more the positive sides of my job now is that I can explain to governments um, and businesses why it's so important to recover better, why recovering with sustainable energy is it's better for economic growth just because of the situation they are in now. And then on the flip side, the more negative side is, you know, there are a few billion people you can't say just stay at home, <laughs> you know, and we are on this webcast using all this energy are very, very fortunate, but there are quite a few people that can't just stay at home. And that's very, very important to note how we're interconnected and how this is a global problem and not just a problem for developing countries. And something that I really appreciate over the years listening to you is how consistent your messaging has been. And I think that there have been several key threads that have followed you throughout your career. And a lot of the stuff that you talk about mainly, we just had the um, se for all Youth Summit a few weeks ago. And also you talk about the role of women in the energy transition. So I just want you to talk about what your motivations are now, because I know motivations evolve over time. And uh, your initial motivations for wanting to be in energy space may not be the same now. So how has that really adapted? And how is your concentration for women and for or youth really changing and really adapting in the work you do? Well, youth and women are always going to be front and center in my agenda, especially young 
African young women, to be honest. Any way I can empower them, the better. And I say this because I was given an opportunity at a relatively young age, uh, 27, to head an agency in at least one of the biggest megacities they are in the world. So if you don't give back and give that opportunity, and I didn't know it all. I, I wasn't, I didn't have all the experience because I was young, but I got on and I did it. And I had a team of people uh, even younger than me at the time that we, we were just all there to, to fix a problem. And I think that is very, very powerful. And I think the ability, especially of the African youth, is so underestimated. So it would always be something I would advocate for in any sector, to be honest, that the youth have to be part of that conversation. It's not oh, just form part of the committee. It's, it's, it's taking ownership and being part of government and being part of policies and being part of business development. You know, you know a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want to take, what if I can't make a difference? But you can't really talk about making a difference if you don't go into the system. However bad you think the system is, that's the only way you're going to make true differences. And I would always advocate for that. And the youth summit was just because we hadn't had something focused on the young people, explaining to them just the opportunities that they are out there and, and celebrating their innovations. And then also, you know, getting academic institutes to offer some students scholarships. So that was very important to me. And that is a theme you're going to see throughout my tenure at SE4 and the UN, just the powerful role that the youth actually have. The other part in terms of gender is so important. I mean, it's already bad in the energy engineering and energy space in terms of recognizing just how important women are. And, you know, it was nice to kind of be the first female GM in, in Lagos and the first, you know, female REA MD and now kind of like the first female African, you know, CEO of SE4. But I, I would like it to stop with me with all these firsts, you know, I mean, we're still doing first for women in 2020. And I think that's a bit disappointing. I think, you know, investing in training and developing young women and also not counting, uh, you know, gender outcomes by the outcomes. I think women fits into the inputs, like how more efficient is an energy project if a woman is one of the solar technicians or solar engineer or project manager. You know, I was really, really fortunate two weeks ago to be in Nigeria you know, walking around with my former governor now, Minister Fashola, on his 2.1 megawatt solar hybrid system to power the Ministry of Works and Housing. And, you know, it was a female-led effort, and it was some of the solar technicians I had trained in my life in REA. And it was just amazing to see how they were working for private sector, and they were, you know, talking about the system, you know, to a level of detail that I couldn't do. And it was just like, that's what we're trying to say, like give women a chance. We're not trying to say anything more. And I guess another very important statistics is when you give women sustainable energy, especially in businesses, especially in the communities that don't have it, they're 59% more productive, basically. So those are, those are things that really get me going. So women agenda is something that we're going to see throughout my tenure and, uh, and a focus on the developed world as well as the developing world, you know, putting them on par is also very important to me. And there's actually something else that I want to talk about that that's really quite consistent throughout your career at this point is the role of government as you talk about it. So oftentimes when, when people advocate for youth to get involved in energy, I always assume that they're talking about either into the private sector or through entrepreneurship because that, that's what I feel like most young people can have the most impact. But there's something you consistently say about getting involved with politics and not being afraid of being involved in the political process. The first time I heard that, I completely disagreed 
disagree with that because I just feel like, oh no, there's no way you can actually make impact in this sector, blah, 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 blah. So I actually want to hear about this because I've not heard you talk about it at length before. So could you just start with why you give that advice and if it's still the case now? First, I give that advice because I'm a product of government. I can't shy away or remove myself from that. I wouldn't be where I was if I did not go through the Nigerian government system, if I didn't have the badge, the heartache, the great work, everything. So I say that because that's what I have done as well, personally. You know, And I say that if, even when I want to critique government, I have done it. So I, I think like I have a little bit more stripes to say that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that there's no bigger impact that you can make in the developing world unless government is involved. You know, we live in the, the, the markets that we live in and how, and, how, and how we're developing, especially, and I, and I was saying to a lot, of, a lot of youth in the global south and the global north, you are striving for policies to be made, right? You are striving for inclusion, right? In most economies, that is actually done by government. So why don't you want to be part of the process developing that? And it's not an easy process. It's a very difficult process, but it makes you stronger. So now in the terms of where I am, I'm relatively young, but it doesn't matter because I feel like I've been through this kind of very, very steep experience, right, that allows you to do that. The other thing is that if you want to impact the maximum amount of people you can impact, it is very rare that you can you cannot do it without government. So even people who say, oh, we're going to a private sector, they're still going to go back to government for some permit, something, someday. You know what I mean? That's, that's just the way life is, you know? And I want to impact millions of people. So, and I want other people to, so I, I think it's key because when you understand how government works, even when you're outside government, you can think about solutions based on how something works, you know? Right now, everybody's always very big to criticize, and that's fair enough because they're citizens. You, you can do that, right? But if you understand who you need to talk to, how it works, all the processes that goes to place, you actually provide solutions, you know what I mean? Instead of, why don't you do this? Da, da, da. Why doesn't, you know, I don't know, South Africa change all this code to renewable tomorrow, you know? <laughs> Break down and understand what is needed and, and change something. You just have to do something that changes something. And for me, it was always just, I just want to change somebody's life. I come from a very, very privileged background. And that's not the reality in my country or in my continent. So how do you just change somebody's life? And I think if we have that or making a difference, government or no government, you know, whatever you decide to do, then you become a better person. You know, you know, you, you have to have some values on you know, that however bad you think your life is, somebody else's life is worse, right? Mm -hmm. And how, how can I change that person's life? And I think that's how I've seen things. And I think government is, is key to make that happen. And just touching more on that point, there was this report by the IEA, I think it was in their energy report of 2019, that they said that if it's still on the current track, about 650 million people won't have access to energy by, by 2030 or 2040. And nine, nine out of 10 of those people would be from Sub-Saharan Africa. And th that was one of the motivations to starting the podcast because there wasn't really a podcast I felt like really spoke about energy from an African context or from the context of developing countries or from the global south. And I felt that there was this huge lack of representation. I just want you to talk about that a bit because when we talk about energy access, there's this realization by everybody in the entire world that the people who are from developing countries are the ones who are going to lack or going to be the, the last to, to get energized. 
but still a lot of the action, at least I feel, isn't really fast enough and the response isn't as urgent considering that 2030 is nine years away. So I really want to hear you talk about that because I, I know that you are very optimistic when it comes to meeting the goals and for charging and for actually getting work done. So I really want you to expatiate on that. Well, I mean, I have to be optim- optimistic about the goals because we still have to set a goal. But you are totally correct in the term of it's not going fast enough, Right. And one of my roles is to kind of light a flame of just how urgent it really, really is. I I do feel sometimes that some people think this not having power to some people who are thousands of miles away is just like a mere inconvenience. You know, I don't think people relate it to the difference between life and death for many people, you know, in terms of not having power in health systems. And, And I also think that we should stop thinking about the minimum level of energy for the developing world. It needs to be focused on energy for development and energy for getting people out of extreme poverty into some type of economic growth story. So I've always said that. I'm hoping this year there's a bit of a changing point. There's a high-level dialogue on energy, which is the first time in 40 years on the UN. But we're going to really really push countries and sovereigns and businesses to, to really take a look at this issue and say, like, what else can we do? I don't believe that, you know, We've exhausted all the instruments that we could possibly find on resolving this issue. But one key thing is that, you know, there's a big gap and a big financial challenge, right? And it doesn't matter how great your plans are if we don't have people insisting that they're going to fund some of these programs going forward with huge amounts of money. We are going to still have that gap. And that is what I'm trying to avoid. So the the universal access target to 2030 is actually, in terms of every technical side, possible. <laughs> it's the other issues that, that you know, that, that stop things from working. But technically, you know, it's there. The innovation is there. Different technologies are there. But we have to sort out the data, the policies, and most important, the financing. And I actually want to go a bit deeper on that because you mentioned financing and I know because we had an episode in the past about impact investing that just having the money isn't really the only issue we need to solve. We need to solve how to actually get that money and really get the money active. So it's not just about giving the money to people. It's about how do we make the money actually active. And I just want to talk about other challenges that... that, uh, that They're SPC not giving the money to people. <laughs> so <laughs> let's not let's pretend like there's all this money being given to people. Impact investing, giving $1 million or $2 million to start up something isn't the money we're talking about. We're talking about an African sense, $30 billion a year. That has to flow. You know, and that money has to come from larger institutions, has to come from larger, you know, global governments that are encouraged and wanting Africa's, you know, universal access to be a clean access point. But the right now it isn't there. So it's, I know, I know a lot of people do, you know, a lot of small things in different silos and tick boxes. That's not what we're talking about now. We're talking about if you really, really want to make a dent, it's hundreds of billions that you, you have to invest in these economies. Then they will change policies. They will change laws. They will do things like that. But like, if you're just, you know, floating five million dollars a year on them, that's that's not going to do anything. So back to your question. I actually have to just go back to that. Like, how do you hear all the or how do you see all these facts and figures and still remain optimistic with all the challenges that SG7 is currently facing? Because if you compare some of these facts and figures to like the cost of one World Cup. Do you know what I mean? Or the cost of Netflix, 
you know, subscription in a year, which we all do, by the way, you know, it's like 10 times that, like, it's, it's not, it's, it's not money that, you know, we haven't ever done some of this money. We've done it for bailouts, you know, globally before. So the money is within reach, you know, it's just for us to all decide we're focusing on one big problem. It's like when we're trying to do the Gavi vaccination, 600 million check was written and it was focused on one big problem, right? That hasn't happened with energy access. It happens on the climate level with 100 billion and blah, blah, but everyone getting together and saying, how are we going to, you know, come together and get hundreds of billions into this problem that, yes, predominantly affects, you know, global south, but it affects us all, you know, at the end of the day. That has not happened yet. And that's what we have to make sure does happen. Does this come down to a lack of willingness from like global, like international financial institutions to to put money into the problem? Or is it something else that we're totally missing here? I don't know if it's something else that we're totally missing. I think that for a lot of years, there's been a real disconnect between climate and energy. And a lot of countries or a lot of people did not understand how important the link was. So if we do not achieve universal access by 2030, we're not going to achieve net zero. It's not maybe, it's not possible. And I think now we're connecting the dots and trying to explain just how important it is for us globally. I think we will see more things happening, but it depends on how fast it is. And so it's 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 also a government problem, but it's also a global problem as well. So it's all actors coming together and say, I want to work at the speed and scale needed to resolve this project. And that's what my organization, that conversation just, constantly pushing that conversation that when you think about energy you see my face just constantly pushing that <laughs> that argument and that dialogue is my goal you mentioned the difference in the climate community and the energy community although a large part of our energy generation does contribute a lot to carbon emissions from the book that christiana figures wrote i think it was the future which was you talked about the role of slow change and how that really affects because when you're dealing on an international level because i want to go to that now and we are dealing with multiple stakeholders that have different interests how do you appreciate the need for slow change but also how do you inject that urgency that we have nine years that we have 800 million people who still don't have access and they're concentrated in one region and this region has been underserved for decades and even centuries. So how do you really balance that? And is that something that you're currently having to deal with? I don't balance it. I just keep on emphasizing it because everybody would love to work at a, a certain pace. You know, that's just, that's just our natural state, especially when it's taken developed world quite a few decades to get this thing done. But what we're trying to say is that we just have to keep going. We now have the technology advances to go faster and quicker, right? So mm-hmm. technology has met up and technology is only going to get better, you know, and systems and clean energy solutions are only going to get cheaper. So what really is our excuse? And our excuse is we need to just come together and say we're solving it. I mean, and again, I don't want to use an analogy of COVID, but like everyone came together and said, we're doing a vaccine and all of a sudden there was a vaccine so and it's it's costing a lot more than any kind of access problem it's you know what i mean and it's that whole union and that takes time to rally people around but you know again being positive and not wasting a pandemic this shows how important it is right because everyone is interconnected and how critical energy that responsible for at least three quarters of global greenhouse emissions it has to be part of this conversation. And there's also this expectation. I, I know that SDG 7, the entire goal is to strive for clean, sustainable energy where possible. But 
when you look at the African continent in, in particular, there's still a large need to industrialize. And I've heard a lot of arguments made by a lot of people, especially on the podcast, about we must be willing to entertain other forms of energy and not just like pigeonhole ourselves to just look at renewables and just clean energy sources. And I just was really curious about it. Like, how do you see the role of development really playing in how we select energy choices and how we really build out our infrastructure in particular? Because you mentioned the need to build out infrastructure, and that is a very energy intensive process, I think, India. China and Africa are going to lead when it comes to population growth and for energy demand in the next 40 years. And that is a serious thing because we're looking at potentially a lot more carbon emissions in the region. So is this something they're particularly looking at when it comes to SDG 7 and how you advocate for it? Yes, of course. I mean, the goal is net zero by 2050, right? Mm -hmm. So you work back in 2050, but human development is just as important as climate. We're doing this for people, for climate. So it's not it's not okay for people to be left in extreme poverty because you don't want to increase climate emissions. Do you, do you understand? I don't I don't advocate yeah. for that, but I do advocate for a world where you can do both, right? And I think this is where the lack of data comes in. You know, what is the energy transition plan for for I don't know Sierra Leone, for Ethiopia, for Algeria, to all those countries? Country specific energy transition plan, knowing that the low carbon trajectory is where we're trying to go to. So I think that could be a win win without saying stop everything today. But the point is, you know, we are advocating for clean energy, we are advocating for renewables, but we have to understand what the clean energy and, and what the just transition really means. And we can't take just transition plans from one country and just implement it in another country because oh, that is the best thing to do. Because even in the best country in the world, they're still developing, they're still going through their transition. You know, we don't have a case of this is the perfect country that, you know, there are many countries that are still using all sorts of transitionary fuels. And I think people will recognize that Africa also has to do that, but we still need to be able to conform to net carbon. So for my, me, it's like looking at 2050 and working backwards on what has to be done from now to then. And we all know at least the energy access conversation is a cleaner conversation. But that doesn't mean we're not building distribution lines and transmission networks and stuff in the energy sense, right? And we're not, again, getting people out of poverty is very, very important as well. And Africa still does have to industrialize. Whatever industrialization form it takes is one that would be very interesting in particular to what we're saying. So the role of transitioning fuels, it's not is it needed, it's how long is it needed to. I think that's the conversation we should be having. And what is the data to tell us when we can actually transition out of some of these fuels? And that's actually very well said. And a lot of the people who are going to be listening to this are going to be young people in the energy space. And you've spoken about private and about governments. So what advice would you give young people now from the African continent or from other developing countries, or even if they're from North America or Europe, that want to get engaged in the energy sector and they want to find a place where they can uniquely add value and be part of the transition, whether that's part of the government in the private sector or true entrepreneurship. So what advice do you generally want to give them and what skills do you think will be relevant for the future? of the industry? Well, you said everything anyway, all the different sectors they can be involved in. But I would say they need to spend a lot of time studying and understanding and being current with the trends. It's always very, very important to prepare for everything. And, and, and I am always constantly studying. I mean, I do that probably every Sunday, just reading up on what people are thinking, how trends are going. You need to have always a basic understanding. You cannot come in just because you're at a position thinking you know it all. I think challenging yourself is really important as well. You know, going into a role that really, really does challenge you. It all depends on exactly what exactly you're willing to seek. 
But, you know, just because I talk about renewables doesn't mean I don't have to understand what's happening in the oil and gas sector or the aviation sector or the transportation sector. And it's not always about energy. It's, uh, you know, healthcare is important, agriculture is important. And then I can now link the relationships to energy. So constantly kind of, you know, kind of educating yourself is very, very important. The other part that's really important is to understand that it's not easy. It's not an easy sector, right? And there's going to be some pitfalls, but it's also one of the few sectors that once you see the impact or if you give a community some power and stuff, I mean, I really believe in blessings and all those type of things and karma. And there's no better feeling than working in something where you are are literally transforming someone else's life. So, and and that's a very personal thing to me. And I I don't take it for granted at all being in this privileged role to allow me to do things like that. And then finally, just do it. Like, you know, we had some amazing young people saying, yep, we're already providing power to some schools in Uganda. We're already doing this. So, you know, people are doing stuff, you know, you don't have to wait till it's part of some bigger plan, get together, you know, get a GoFundMe page and just do stuff. And any other information you want to have, please like log on to our website and as you all we have quite a few young people they're the ones that put together the youth summit and they would also be happy to kind of communicate with you guys if there's anything specific that we can help you with well, my whole thing is not an easy journey but it's an extremely rewarding one that's actually very very honest and beautiful and thank you for that at just the end of the interview you've been at SE4O for quite a while now and you've been head of the organization and I believe you've been through the paces and I think COVID has kind of accelerated many of the learnings you would have probably had to do so what have you enjoyed the most so far about the role and about the experience and what have you enjoyed the least just to close off the interview Okay, the least is probably the fact that I'm working in a pandemic and I'm a very people-oriented person. I like to speak to people. I like to see people. So doing it on a screen has been extremely tough. What I truly enjoyed about the role that I've been for just over a year is just the global reach that it actually really has. That is really important to me. And then being part of a UN, which is like a you know, kind of like the height of the multilateral system. And you see like, wow, if something can work on this level, then it can work on the ground, you know? And and just taking those learnings and like, yeah, and just learning from like the incredible people that I get to work with, which I would have never met if I wasn't in this role. So that has been a true blessing to me. Damala, thank you for this. I have truly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for being on the podcast. This is a dream come true. So I really appreciate you making the time. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Lumi. Have fun. Keep spreading the message. And hopefully we see you in person one day. Thank you so much for joining us this week. I hope you had just a good time listening to the conversation as I did speaking with Damdala. All the information we referenced will be in the link in the description so you can find the website of Sustainability for All in case you want to get in touch or find out more about their programs. Thank you so much for joining us this week and please do share this with a friend or a colleague if you did find it useful and join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Talk. I hope you all have a fantastic week and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye now.